Welcome to Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. I'm your host, Dr. David Zarung. On today's episode, Sarah Freed interviews psychologist Dr. Lavanya Devdas regarding acculturative stress. Sarah, welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, for our listeners who don't yet know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm currently finishing up my fifth year in Chestnut Hill College's uh, doctoral program in clinical psychology, and I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I've been a part of the podcast team just for a few months now, and I've really enjoyed getting to know everybody, and I um, actually look forward to matching for my internship site a week from today. Wow. Well, good luck to you. That, that well, What an exciting and pivotal, pivotal time for you. Yes, yes, thank you. What area of psychology interests you most at this point? Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in psychodynamic psychotherapy, and I'm currently doing my dissertation on how first responders in rural areas respond to disasters such as the 9-11 plane crash in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Mm, wow. So some trauma work. Yeah, and that's a, a, a growing and vital uh, area of interest in, in a practical application of our skills. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, good luck with that project as well. Thank you. So in this episode, you interview uh, Dr. Devdas. Uh, how did you get to know her and how this interview come about? So after I joined the podcast team, there was a need for someone to do an episode on acculturative stress. And the team found Dr. Devdas, and I had never met her before. So we had a quick Skype meeting where we really got to know um, each other's backgrounds, what we're interested in, and what we wanted from this podcast. I had actually never heard of the term acculturative stress until this moment. So it was a really great experience for me to meet with her and talk about what this word means, how it applies to our field, and how us as clinicians can better help our clients keeping a culture of stress in mind. This is one of the things that has excited me about this podcast project is uh, the mutual learning that occurs. Um, learning on our end as we uh, do interviews and, and put this together, but, but um, also hopefully learning for uh, the listener. And um, so thanks for, for doing this. Absolutely. It was a, it was a wonderful experience. And by the end of the podcast, Dr. Devdas and I said, we have to do this again. This was so much fun, and we both learned so much. So hopefully more will come. Yeah, it was a great conversation, and and uh, I could tell that you guys enjoyed interacting with each other. Um, what were some of the things that interested you most or some takeaways from your conversation? So Dr. Devdas is a woman of color and an international student. So it was really wonderful for me to hear how a culture of stress has impacted her clinical skills and her career, what she's learned from it and how she applies it to those she works with and and everything she does. It was really great for us to also talk about what it could mean for students in the psychology programs who are experiencing a culture of stress and what we can do as peers and colleagues to better be aware of this and to help out. I think that meta-awareness can be so helpful, uh, both as we are working with clients as well as as when we are working with colleagues and in other groups, um, doing supervision, for example. 
Um, so it's a an awareness that I think can be applied in uh, many settings. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that, that I noticed also was that while the primary focus of the conversation was more uh, ethnic and maybe uh, gender issues, it struck me that this mindset could apply to all sorts of cultural stresses, um, whether it's age differences, education differences, professional differences, um, religious differences, Mm -hmm. uh, political differences even. It's a useful mindset to have. And so I hope that the listeners are stimulated to think about all the various ways they can apply this in their day-to-day lives. Absolutely. I think with the socio-political climate, just differences in students' ages and backgrounds and um, all different identifying differences, I think this term can be really applicable and can teach us a lot. And that's one thing that Dr. Devdas and I talked about is how do intersecting identities, how are they impacted by a culture of stress and how can we keep that in mind with everyone we meet, with the different backgrounds they bring um, to our community. Well, Sarah, thank you for interviewing Dr. Dedis for us. Absolutely. It was definitely a joy, and I can't wait to do it again. Now, for our listeners, our interviews are often done in the field, so you might hear some background noise during parts of the interview. So we ask that you bear with us during those segments. And now for the interview. Enjoy. So thank you for taking the time with us to talk on the podcast about acculturative stress, Lavanya. Absolutely. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what acculturative stress is? Sure. Uh, Acculturative stress is when a person who deals with uh, two or more cultures comes to a host culture, and that host culture is distinct in many ways than similar from the indigenous culture. So the process of adjusting to the immediate host culture while retaining aspects of the indigenous culture, that phenomenon is what is referred to as acculturative stress. And I believe it was first coined by Barry. Oh, okay, great. And how did you get interested in this topic? Well, (laughs) um, you know, I have been an international student and I'm also a woman of color. And the culture that I identify with, which is a collectivist culture, is very distinct from the U.S.-based Western culture that I interact with. Mm -hmm. So more than a a choice or a preference, I think it was my way of living. And uh, knowing and understanding and experiencing acculturative stress gave me a foundation uh, to place what I was going through when I was navigating multiple cultures at different levels. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. So why is it important for psychology as a field to understand and address this phenomenon? Sure. So I think as a field of psychology, I think we are living in an age where psychology is really globalized. So it reaches every, almost every nook and corner of the world that we live in. And having said that, U.S. is also a population of people from different walks of life in different countries and different cultures. And as uh, psychologists, we do uh, take our ethics code and we do take what APA recommends, but also from a humanity level of serving the population that we work with 
in a very culturally sensitive manner and a competent manner at that. Mm-hmm. And so part of providing culturally competent services is to understand the lived experiences of the clients that we see. And that includes international students, folks who come from different countries. And so it is extremely important for us, especially in the world of globalization today, uh, mm-hmm. and when we are, we are working hand in glove with people from across the world to understand the nuances of what it means for a person from another culture to acclimate to the immediate culture and yet retain aspects of the indigenous culture. So that mm-hmm. provides the context for our clinical work together. Okay. So it sounds like a, something that we strive to balance for and yet include um, our own identities with those who we work with. Absolutely. And they bring that in the room, I mean, in the room wherever we are. So um, it would be hard not to include that in in our work together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are there ways you find it easier to be included in our work than others? So there are ways that I do feel easier now compared Mm -hmm. to before, because when I first came here, I really, there were so many nuances uh, that I that I didn't realize I had to deal with. It's one thing to go through our pre-expectations of coming to this country. It's one thing to read about the US-based Western culture and get exposed to it through media and television and books. It is a totally different ball game uh, coming here and experiencing it firsthand. So right off the bat, when I first landed, uh, this is a very, and I can make light of it now, when I landed yeah. at, the, at the airport here and the international coordinator at that time had come to pick me up, she asked me, do you want to use the restroom? Now, I use the word bathroom for, for a bathroom. And she said, right. well, do you want to go to the restroom? And I'm thinking, I've, I've, and I explained this to her. I said, you know, I've had a really long flight and I would not want to go into the room to rest. I'd rather rest after we reach, right. <laughs> reach where we're supposed to be. But I would love to use the bathroom. And she's like, yeah, yeah that's what I meant. And I was like, why is she asking me to rest in the bathroom? <laughs> okay. And then she explained, she's like, no, 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 wait. So bathrooms are called restrooms here. And that was my first lesson as soon as I landed. Wow. So for me, it was about acclimating to this communication style, the phrases, the words, uh, acclimating to uh, a preference for extroversion in this US-based Western culture. Um, I also had to shift from a very nonverbal kind of communication, which is very predominant in the South Asian culture, which is what I identify Mm -hmm. with, to a very verbal form of communication. So I express a lot more than I used to. Um, Classroom settings. Um, When I first went into a classroom, people don't call on you. Like in, so in India, you get called on to give your responses in classrooms. It's very hierarchical. It's very formal. Mm-hmm. Here in classrooms, it's it's more discussion based. It's more informal. So I kept waiting for an entire class to be called on, and I noticed people just started talking. And I'm thinking, okay, I guess we just start talking then. Mm-hmm. You know, so, wow. Yeah. So those were just some layers of uh, acculturation that I went through to understand it. Wow. So even something as simple as the bathroom versus the restroom to being fully immersed in a classroom and just sort of visually trying to pick up what's going on around you in this host culture. Exactly. Yeah. That's very interesting. So what are the different ways people experience acculturative stress? 
Sure. So the different ways people experience acculturative stress is, you know, for it can be it can look so different for different people, and it's important to understand in in one's own culture how is stress primarily expressed. So in my culture, for example, um, it's very somatically expressed. So nonverbal kind of communication is very important. So in my culture, it's about a lot of somatic expressions of stress. So when mm -hmm. I first came here, I noticed I would get a lot of frequent headaches. And of course, I, I want to rule out medical issues. I would go for checkups and they would say nothing is wrong, but I would get these frequent headaches. And I would know that in India, when I was stressed out, I would get headaches. And that's how I know that, okay, uh, when I, my body responds to stress in a, in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways uh, culturative stress is experienced is somatic complaints. So headaches, um, uh, an upset stomach, uh, body pains, muscle pains, um, a, a lot of uh, somatic complaints that people might not have otherwise faced before. So mm -hmm. somatic is one of them. In terms of behaviors, um, because there's so much to navigate, even in the social setting, because social relationships are also very differently um, contextualized in the U.S. compared to other cultures. Mm -hmm. So it is natural to become silent because you first want to observe and you want to learn. But sometimes what happens is it becomes overwhelming. And so you shut down, you withdraw. Mm -hmm. So there's social withdrawal. You talk less. You withdraw from your social support systems. Um, so behaviorally, you will see that you know, there are some social changes in terms of relationships, communications, but also there's a mood shift. You become a lot more moody. You become a lot more irritable. You become um, very anxious. You become very low. Um, and another uh, area through which acculturative stress manifests is I think sometimes you tend to become very forgetful. Because when you're stressed out, your memory gets impacted quite a bit. Right. So you tend to become very forgetful. You tend to make more mistakes. And unfortunately, if you're in a classroom setting or if you're in an evaluation uh, setting, mm -hmm. you know, and if you tend to make a lot of mistakes when you express yourself or uh, you're very forgetful, then you get evaluated on that. So that mm. becomes an added layer that you deal with as a result of acculturative stress. Wow. Um, yeah, and the last uh, piece I would add is, um, and I don't mean to generalize in, in any mm -hmm. way, but especially for students uh, who are international students, um, for them to not perform well in a classroom setting is, is a huge blow because mm -hmm. they've come seven seas away, they have a lot of uh, expectations on them, they have a lot of self-expectations on them. And so for them to not succeed in a classroom because of the experience of acculturative stress, and to get evaluated by faculty or staff who might not be aware that acculturative stress is in the making. Uh, it mm -hmm. is a, a double whammy for them because now they need to put their acculturative stress aside and figure out what is going on academically, which is for most international students, it's at the forefront of their identity. Why isn't that working out in this country and how come I succeeded so well mm -hmm. uh, in my home country? So those are questions that wow. often get uh, uh, posed because of acculturative stress. So th that's in a snippet. Wow. And it sounds like such a cycle, like mental, physical, it can be somatic, behavioral. And as clinicians and teachers, and for anyone who interacts with someone who might be experiencing acculturative stress, we should be on the lookout for these signs almost. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And you might come across some folks who are doing really well professionally and academically, mm -hmm. and they might still be experiencing a, a culture rate of stress. So it just manifests in such a varied spectrum. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Are there any um, skills or tactics that you could tell clinicians or teachers to sort of be on the lookout for, especially um, knowing academics or professionalism, um, job level, what am I, what am I thinking of? Um, job opportunities and skills, like those are on the line. Absolutely. I think it becomes very important, um, you know, from an institutional standpoint for faculty and staff to at least give a brief overview of classroom culture and their expectations and embed that into the classroom settings. Because if mm. you're taking the time to go over the syllabus and respectful behaviors and part of that etiquette is also to talk about classroom culture what's expected what's not expected and whether you would be willing uh, for students to approach you not mm -hmm. just clarify academic questions or coursework but also if you're having difficulty with adjusting uh, to the campus climate difficulty adjusting to the classroom climate to just come and talk with them so when you do that actually on an ongoing basis I think it creates an, a milieu, a work milieu and, uh, and an academic milieu where it's a joint collective effort of not just a counselor or a therapist or not just the International Center uh, mm. to touch on these topics, but that everybody is invested in the success of all students, including international students. So that would be one of the ways uh, that I can recommend. Mm -hmm. um, I also was a liaison to the International Student Office uh, back at my internship. And during that time, I found it so helpful to do workshops on just working with international students in academic settings for faculty and staff, who also went ahead and actually tried uh, using a certain language, a certain style uh, with uh, the classroom. And they found that students were, international students were actually approaching them more. So I think the way you place what you're trying to convey, your intention of cultural sensitivity from the get-go can make a huge difference at the work environment as well as um, in classroom settings. Absolutely. I think that's a great idea to first even put it in the syllabus or go over it if we're taking the time to talk about what's due when and the format of the class might as well talk about can you raise your hand? Do you just want to call out? Can you leave to go to the bathroom or do you need to wait? things like that to make everyone, especially international students, feel more comfortable. Absolutely. That would go mm -hmm. a long way. Absolutely. And I really like that you were a liaison. And I just finished a clinical at a college counseling center, and I could find that really helpful. And I worked with a lot of international students, but I think it would have been helpful to learn what to be on the lookout for, what can I give them in a session to sort of make them feel more comfortable, or what questions could I even ask them? Absolutely. I think it's great. Congratulations on finishing up, uh, you know, your, your work there. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So what would you say the potential impacts um, that acculturative stress have um, that we need to be aware of as clinicians? So as clinicians, I think uh, acculturative stress, I think it can mimic anxiety. It can mimic depression. It can mim mimic appetite changes, sleep changes. Uh, it can uh, mimic um, mood dysregulation, cutting um, behaviors, uh, relying on substance use is very common. Mm -hmm. uh, the nonverbal 
ways of coping and we have to decide whether it's effective or ineffective mm. depending on the extent to which they rely on those coping strategies um, in terms of um, other ways that we need to keep a lookout for is when you have a student who's frequented uh, medical doctors who's frequented medical checkups it could be um, a preoccupation with health but it also could be that this person is experiencing a lot of somatic stress uh, mm -hmm. and sometimes that's very closely associated with acculturative stress mm -hmm. so i think um, in terms of and sometimes if there are sudden dipping grades or the, the person has you know done really well or the person has performed really well has gotten stellar evaluations at their workplace and all of a sudden that's dipping mm. then uh, assessing for what happened in the, in the week before all of this started, were there any microaggressions? Uh, were there any uh, conversations that really upset you or something that stood out for you? I mm. think those are very subtle ways that we can keep a lookout for that acculturative stress is kind of starting to manifest itself. Um, so for example, for me, uh, I think I, I, there was one time when I was doing my practicum and, and I usually consider myself to be somewhere in between of being outgoing and, and needing my space to you know kind of regroup and i remember midway in that practicum i remember slightly withdrawing from my co-workers and my supervisors and i think um, there were discussions around me about what might have happened and i think being a prac student and understanding the nuances of being evaluated and coming from a culture where performance and evaluation is is highly stressed upon I was not sure how much I could voice uh, that I'm at that time I was primarily a person who spoke less mm. and I was primarily a nonverbal communicator and oftentimes I think when you don't know how to read those nonverbal cues and you don't feel supported in that environment one of the things that I did to protect myself was to shut down because I I didn't feel like I had or at least I didn't perceive that there were enough support systems for me to voice what I was going through and so right. if you notice any sudden shift, um, you know, the behavior wise, mood wise, uh, socially, performance wise, um, then I think those would be important cues, uh, you know, to explore acculturative stress. Those are great examples. Are there ways in which acculturative stress gets in the way of individuals seeking help? And is there anything we can do to sort of break down that stigma? Absolutely. I think depending on, you know, which uh, nationality and depending on which culture uh, the international person or, or the student comes in from, I think it's important to understand the history of mental health in that culture or in that country. So, for example, I can speak to the South Asian um, culture. Uh, it, it has come a long way. However, I do know that there's a lot of stigma around seeking mental health services or just the concept of mental health and putting words and verbalizing mental health is is a taboo mm -hmm. um, there are multiple reasons for that one is verbalizing is a very western philosophy of mental health the mind-body connection the energies that we channel from within where we experience our bodies when we are stressed that's really underestimated in the western culture from my perspective um, so I guess in my culture, when we say, tell me more about what you're going through, the first thing that you, you'll notice people tend to do is shut down because it's, it's hard enough to walk into a counselor's room fighting all that stigma 
Absolutely. And then without addressing that stigma, uh, to ask, tell me more, it's, it's just culturally uh, a mismatch uh, to, with some people at least. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, also the stigma of being weak, the stigma of not having succeeded in another country, mm -hmm. uh, the stigma of having done so well in one country and knowing that the same skills are suddenly not working in another country, those are perceived as huge failures for a lot of students or for a lot of people who are international that I work with. Mm -hmm. So the first thing to say is, for me, at least when I say to people, you've, you've had such a success story from where you've come from. Why don't, you, why don't we start with that success story? Or success is not the right word. Why don't you tell me about experiences or things that you've enjoyed doing back home? What do you miss? What do you, what do you like? What do you pride yourself in? Um, and I think opening with that can go a long way because I think a lot of clients will brighten up because it's like, yeah, when I was there, this is what I was. This, I was the president of this or I was, I was a, a volunteer, I was a lead project manager. And you'll see stories come out and the narratives come out. And then I'll say, let's please take that narrative and place it here in the US and tell me what's missing for you uh, to make that narrative happen. And then they'll say, well, people are different. Or they'll say, uh, people, uh, common concern that I hear is people don't know how to work in groups. And for a lot of uh, clients that I work with, um, they'll come and say, uh, I use the word we a lot. And one of the reactions that at least one of my clients shared with me was that another peer uh, who, was, uh, who was a domestic student uh, told her, do you do any work on your own? Why do you keep using we? Why don't you use I? Hmm. And, and my client shut down because she's coming from a very collectivist culture, whereas the student who's domestic is coming from an individualistic culture where it's about I. So there's I and there's we. Right. So I think being mindful of the language that we use as clinicians, and in fact, I'll come out and ask. I'll say, I'm, I'm from a collectivist culture. I tend to use we very frequently. That works for some people. That does not work for some people. Tell mm -hmm. me what you'd like me to do. Mm -hmm. So that serves two purposes. One is it empowers the, the person sitting in front of me to make their decision. And that also tells them that if there are cultural issues that I would welcome for the conversations about it. I'm digressing quite a bit because. No, that's great. That's, it sounds like a really nice way to open up the space to a client and just let them say, let them say their life in another culture, how important that was to them. Um, yet that may not translate over to our culture and that can sort of shed light to the clinician and the client or the person or the student on what might be coming up for them these days or this year or with this transition. And also by starting the session off by saying, I'm from a collectivist culture, I use we a lot, and sort of opening that dialogue I'm sure makes them feel more comfortable and will let you know and open up the space a little bit to talk about similarities, differences, and what might be going on during their transitions. Absolutely. I think that's a great summary. I've, after I've spoken so much, I think it's helpful to <laughs> it a little bit. Well, I'm learning a lot, so I really appreciate that. Me too. So as a woman of color who has also been an international student, could you speak to the intersecting identities that interact with acculturative stress? I think... Um, as a woman of color, I also am mindful of the environment 
that I interact with and I live in on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so depending on the context in which I'm interacting in, depending on the role that I occupy in, in informal relationships or in uh, social settings, I'm a woman of color interacting with everybody around me. So at that time, I'm very mindful of who's in front of me. And that's an effort for me. And um, it's an effort because I'm congruent of the acculturation process that I'm constantly mindful of and going through. So depending on who's sitting in front of me, I do need to be aware of how I present myself, my body language, my communication style, uh, the words that I choose. So for example, I recently um, had a conversation with, uh, with a group and this group is primarily made up of uh, my friends who are from the US. And so I'm mindful that I use I a lot. I'm mindful that I make jokes that I went through a lot of effort to understand and learn when I first came here. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm mindful that I'm, um, I explain what I intend to say. Like I provide a context, I explain a bit more of where I'm coming from. On the other hand, if I, if I shift gears and if I'm in a social outing and then I'm with my other South Asian friends or my other my friends from other collectivist cultures, I'll use we a lot. Um, I'll make plans, but I'll make plans for the entire group. I mm. won't say, this was my weekend, how was yours? I'll say, so, how was our weekend? What do we do? Right. And so for me, as, as a woman of color, I'm mindful of these interactions. It also depends on the role. I'm also the chair for the COM uh, at PPA and COM stands for Committee of Multiculturalism. And mm -hmm. so, uh, I own the space a bit more because I need to as the chair sometimes. One of the things that I'm also mindful of is in my leadership style, I have a very collaborative leadership style as a woman of color and as a person who brings my culture with me. So I notice that I, I will use we and I will ask for input a lot of times within the comm. And my uh, acculturative stress is also the process of learning how much do I ask for others' input within a context which perhaps supports this leadership style, but also relies on a very individual leadership style of knowing when to delegate, knowing when to make autonomous decisions. So for me, the process of acculturative stress interacts with my leadership style and drawing a balance between being authentic to my cultural leadership style and also paying attention to the context of PPA and the calm and mm. creating the space for that individuality. So it's, it's the context you're in and who you're with, but also your role. And I'm sure that as a woman of color and an international student, that requires a lot of energy and could cause some more acculturative stress. Whereas myself as a Caucasian female might not have that in mind of who I'm talking with or bringing my culture with me in any space I'm in. So I understand why all that can, you know, sort of add on to acculturative stress, but also really help to inform the space you're in. Absolutely. It's, it's definitely um, a lifelong process. And I've accepted that as a person who likes outcome. This is one, area, one mm -hmm. area where I think for all of us, it's definitely a, a process. Absolutely. That's great. <laughs> so how do you incorporate your own experiences to help potential clients who are experiencing acculturative stress? Sure. I think one of the biggest aspects I would, uh, I would say is self-disclosure. 
I think when it's hard to verbalize what we're going through, um, I use the word we here. So I'm going <laughs> to. I like that. <laughs> um, and say that, you know, when we have folks who come in um, and express a culturative stress or talk about a culturative stress, or sometimes they'll come in and say, I really don't know what's going on. This is not me. Uh, I was very different when I first came here. I don't know what's going on. Uh, it helps to have a shared narrative. So for me, I rely a lot on um, self-disclosure because I think it helps them to see that nobody's immune from a culture rate of stress. It can differ in degree, but even mm -hmm. folks, uh, you know, such as their therapists uh, who they're coming to for help have gone through it and sharing ways that I've coped with it and sharing ways where I've not coped with it and holding it as it is. Um, I think that kind of shared experience almost brings a relief to the person sitting across from me. Um, I've also run multiple international student groups, and this is the first thing that comes to their mind is, wow, I didn't know you went through it. I'm like, of course we all go through it. Mm -hmm. So giving words, giving a narrative, uh, giving a story, you know, helps with empowerment. And it also helps with saying, with seeing that, you know, you, there's hope to navigate it. There's there's some areas that you can navigate and some areas that you, like you said, you need to pick your battles. Right. So hearing that and experiencing that, I think, um, gives a lot of power and it encourages folks to come up with their own narratives. Mm. About that, sounds, stress. that sounds, self-disclosure sounds like a really nice tool. And I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that it might take away some of the pressure to either be performing or feel like they're being evaluated in a session or in a group. Absolutely. I, I think, and this is my experience, that in the field of psychology, I think it's extremely important to discuss uh, the importance of why we're sharing what we're sharing, the intention behind it, and whether it's for the welfare of the person sitting in front of us. And oftentimes, I think, while that's really important, uh, what I would like for us to do more is to also talk about instances where self-disclosure comes spontaneously and to talk about the importance of why did it come out spontaneously in the first place? There's something there that pulled at you. There's, there's some experience or story of that client that tugged at you. Mm. And, and I think to create that balance between intention of self-disclosure and spontaneous self-disclosure would be great for students and for people uh, of uh, different cultures. Absolutely. And I was going to ask you if you had any advice or desires for those who are still in graduate schools or programs furthering their education, what they could do. But that sounds like a really nice skill. Absolutely. Because I think oftentimes it's um, we go back and forth about why did I share? Is it OK to share? Am I being ethical? Is it for the welfare or is it more for my own interest? And I think these are important questions that we need to ask ourselves as we work with other folks. What we also need to ask ourselves is, why is my gut going over this story of mine while this client is, is telling this story? And I think we need to trust our innate ability uh, of our gut as well. I know, and this doesn't take away from the fact that psychology is a science. I also think that we also have a very strong intuitive sense as mental health providers. Mm -hmm. And I wish we use uh, that and rely on that more often in the context of that spontaneous self-disclosure. Absolutely. That's something I'll certainly be aware of going forward, but I think that's really important. Yeah. 
What are some treatment recommendations that would effectively address the potential impact of acculturated stress? So some of the treatment recommendations I may have already touched on, but I'll elaborate on it a little bit, is that I come from a very systems perspective. So I'm going to give a very long-winded systems uh, perspective here. Uh, As I see more and more people walk into my office, I notice that they're the individual, but they don't walk in as an individual. They walk in with their identities of uh, childhood experiences, family experiences, community experiences, experiences at their workplace. And that's no different for people from different cultures. In fact, it's, it's expanded. It's at the macro system. So in terms of treatment recommendations, yes, we can start from the individual, and then we need to expand that to what, what are your relationships like? What do you learn from relationships? What can you give to relationships? at schools, at communities, at neighborhoods, expanding that to tell me about life in your country. Tell me about life in your culture growing up. What was that like? Uh, Uh What was I in connection with we? What was it like to grow up in context? And then what's it like to maneuver the culture here? Hmm. So I think bringing all of those systemic environments that the client is affiliated with into the room during assessment Mm-hmm. During treatment and during um, uh, coping, providing coping strategies becomes extremely important because uh, I was reading a discussion somewhere, and I think the discussion was from a, a person who was, uh, I think it was a businesswoman, but she was from a, a different culture and trying to apply business. Mm-hmm. And I think on this online platform, people were applauding her for being assertive and speaking her mind and and rising beyond beyond the cultural identity. It was something to that effect. And I noticed that this person's response to to those online comments were getting uh, uh, scant. They were becoming less and less, and she was getting briefer. And I think I I wrote to her saying, you know, kudos to you for navigating... um, collectivist needs and individual needs because it's not easy. And then her response was a paragraph long. Wow. You know, and so when we empower our clients to speak your mind, absolutely. Um, I'm a feminist. I believe in um, speaking up for what you stand for, but Mm -hmm. I'm also mindful of clients and what they have to go back to. Mm -hmm. If they go back to, so let's say I have a client who comes in, and she lives uh, and living with family members for a long period of time is very common in some cultures. So if I tell her, yeah, be assertive, absolutely express her individual need for autonomy and going out and, you know, acclimating to the immediate environment, because I'll be doing that. I think I would be doing her a disservice because I first need to assess and understand the ramifications of her speaking her mind to within a family system where respect for elders and a hierarchy is valued. It doesn't matter whether I believe in it or not, but I, she lives in that environment and I need right. to suspend my individual beliefs and work in tandem with that environment that she's living in. So I need to know what's midpoint for you. I need to know what is okay to say, what is an absolutely not okay thing to say and what mm-hmm. is something that might fly. Hmm. So I think stepping back from, uh, I guess, a Western notion of feminism or empowerment of the client and adopting the client's worldview 
all, including where they live in, what mm -hmm. they live in and what they interact with, would solidify my treatment recommendation for acculturative stress. Because mm -hmm. oftentimes we have a lot of uh, folks who are second generation um, and they have to deal with uh, the added acculturative layer of dealing with the immediate school environment, social relationships and peers. And then they go back home and it's a different world because there's that perceived pressure of adhering to the ethnic culture, cultural right. norms and practices. And so they're balancing two worlds within one day. Wow. And so I can't tell them to be assertive throughout. Uh, so the mm -hmm. treatment recommendation there would be, tell me practices of your family that you value, that you're ready to work with, what flies, what does not fly. And then tell me what's acceptable and not acceptable for you while you interface with school and community and neighborhood and friends. Right, because if you were to ask them some grand gesture that they might not feel comfortable with, that might be too much for them at one point. Exactly, exactly. Um, and also not aligning with their culture. Exactly, and that creates an added layer of, of acculturative stress because then they start to wonder, well, if my therapist is telling me this, is there something wrong with me that I'm not able to do it? Right. Fact, there's a whole cultural layer there that mm -hmm. we have not touched on. Right, so by including and finding out their boundaries of what's too much, what's too little, and what might be the sweet spot, um, you can sort of empower them. Absolutely. And I would add to that saying, you know, at the macro level, also understanding what their immigration status is, what their visa status is, uh, you know, I think that is so critical, especially today, because mm -hmm. that can, um, that places them in such a, a helpless position, a perceived helpless position. Absolutely. And not having control over uh, whether you whether you get to stay uh, in a country, whether you get to call a country a home or not, is is destabilizing in, in such a huge way that if we don't touch on those parts of their identities in working with them, uh, then, you know, yeah. our usual customary techniques of coping will not work. Absolutely. It would be doing a disservice and um, just the added anxiety and depression and stress that comes with that, you know, unstable knowledge of the future, I'm sure is just a giant add on to the acculturative stress they might be experiencing. So as clinicians, we need to keep that in mind. Absolutely. I think that would be a huge help. Wow. That's wonderful. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I would like to add that it takes a lot of time to acculturate, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and it takes longer to find that constant balance between um, choosing an immediate response that fits the immediate uh, situation and choosing a response that emulates your culture. Mm. And sometimes it's great when there's both, and sometimes it's it's a package of you choose one over the other. So there is a trade-off, mm. and there's no going around that trade-off. I mean, it is the culturative stress and coping around the culturative stress at a macro level comes with a trade-off. And it's okay because you'll have different situations that taps into different aspects of, of your identities. Mm -hmm. and, um, there's sometimes one or two that can come to the foreground and the rest are in the background, but that does not mean that they're less valid. Absolutely. Or that they're not there. Right. Wow. 
That's very, that's very nice to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with us to talk about acculturative stress, Lafania. I've learned a lot and I can't wait for everyone to hear this. Thank you so much. I feel like I went, I felt like I had to touch on so many points and I know we packed a lot in. I hope um, that, you know, it makes a lot of sense for folks and uh, I'm so glad that we did it. Yay. <laughs> well, thank you. And I know in the beginning, I forgot to ask, um, which I think they might enjoy hearing is maybe your role, like what sort of setting you work in, um, what positions you have, like Calm for PPA. So can I ask you that? Absolutely. Okay. So I uh, just started my private practice in Doylestown. Uh, I'm going to be teaching a group counseling class uh, starting in fall. Uh, I also am a reviewer for the Psychotherapy Journal. Mm -hmm. um, and I am the Committee on Multiculturalism Chair. And I think I'm part of a few more committees. <laughs> but I think the biggest uh, line connecting all of these is uh, really empowerment of the larger community, mm -hmm. um, social justice and advocacy, uh, and doing yeah. it in a way that feels um, palpable for uh, folks who are at such different levels of readiness for this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. My pleasure. And I'm excited. And thank you so much for doing this. This is Of course. I hope we can do part two in the future. I would love that. I would actually yeah. love that. And I hope I yeah. get to learn more about you too. Yes, absolutely. And I'm already thinking of more questions for next time about how one can incorporate this. And of course, I'm thinking about a grad program because I'm still in my grad program, but I just have so many more questions. So I can't wait to do it again. I would love that. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lavanya. My pleasure. Take good care, Sarah. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. We'd love to hear ideas from you about important or fascinating topics that we might cover. Email us at ppa at papsy.org. You can also find us at papsy.org. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you found us. iTunes reviews seem to have the most influence on making it easier for potential listeners to find us. Our project manager and audio editor is Amelia Herbst. Logo and artwork designed by Camille St. James. Music orchestrated by Raquel Emder and Ross Mann. Special thanks to PPA staffer Judy Huntley and PPA members Jessica Black, Bernard Seif, Kim Wesley, Lee Burnett, Cassandra Parrish, Lavanya Devdas, Nancy Ringmore, and Molly Cowan for helping to make this podcast possible. As always, the views of our guests may not necessarily reflect those of PPA as an association. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. David Zarung.